0: Hey listeners, I'm taking this week off, and Katie is on mic for her first full episode this week. Next week, that's right, next week, we'll be dropping our first bonus episode. I'll be revisiting our episode, The Evilest Man in the World, with an update from my own professional research and new scholarship in the field. What does modern criminal psychological profiling tell us about Gilda Ray? What about his trial records? Most importantly, is it possible that Gilda Ray was innocent. Tune in for our episode next week to hear the full discussion. Today's episode is based off the book Gentleman's Blood, a history of dueling from swords at dawn to pistols at dusk, by Barbara Holland. Every parent of sons knows that human males, like the sons of many other mammals, have a strong, intractable, evolutionary, useful urge to hurt each other. When not actually hurting each other, they pretend to kill each other. Small boys, even long before television violence was invented, they have always cocked their fingers into pistols, pointed them at friends, and shouted, bang, bang, you're dead. In wartime, this instinct is celebrated and rewarded with honors and parades. In peacetime, we try to socialize it into sports and business ventures. Men who don't wrestle professionally or play football are urged to prove their mastery over other men by piling up competitive sums of money and displaying them peacock wise with expensive cars, houses, and trophy wives. End quote. These words are the beginning of Barbara Holland's book, Gentleman's Blood, and I think it's fascinating that throughout the entire work, in fact, in the entire history of dueling, the evidence showed that dueling was a male affair. Women rarely dueled, not Calamity Jane, frontierswoman of the Old West, and not Joan of Arc, savior of France. The most famous violent women, if you can call it that, may have ridden into combat, but they did not participate in single combat with another. The few instances women did duel, it was universally women of aristocratic rank over what was considered trivial affairs. As Holland writes, quote, Most of the women involved weren't to be taken seriously anyway. Women had no honor to defend except their reputation for chastity, and that was a man's business, end quote. A man's good name was at stake in their chastity, and a man defended it. Women who had to defend their own honor tended to be actresses, singers, or worse. All the accounts are written by men who cite these squabbles as evidence of women's silliness, spitefulness, jealousy, bad marksmanship, and poor sportsmanship. End quote. Why is that? Traditional gender roles aside, what made men take to violent confrontation in a civilized setting to settle disputes? We don't do that anymore. Nowadays, a man settles his disputes in court, at least legally. Illegally, he might beat a man senseless or murder him in cold blood, but neither are confrontational in the same sense as the duel, and truthfully, none of them feel glorious as an upstaging, a rebuke that can't be replicated either with a saber or pistol, eye to eye with the offender on the same grounds as you. Ever wonder why Americans keep so many firearms in their house? We say for defense or sport, but let's be honest. There are many people that wish they could have a crack at a robber or a murderer themselves in their own home with a gun. Maybe that's as close to a duel as we can legally get, a fantasy in our mind that for the vast majority of men will never become a reality. History proves, time and again, that the duel was a male invention, a code made by men for men. And nowhere is that clearer than in America, where dueling persisted from the colonial age through the Wild West. But what makes the duel so fascinating in America is that it was an art form of its own. An art practiced by families of men, passed down generations, used to solve the highest political disputes in the land. Even where it was declared illegal, it was not just anticipated, it was required. Sometimes, the only way to make amends with a man is to kill him. I'm Katie Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. From the very beginning, duel and justice were tied together. The word duel comes from the Latin word duelum, the combining of duo and bellum, literally two at war. While dueling has existed in some form since the dawn of time, the European concept of dueling began with the early medieval trial by combat, in which a court matter was settled by single combat. The victor, it was believed, was chosen by God to win. Thus, God himself decided the matter for mortals. The loser, whether his life was spared or not, was guilty, and that typically meant he died. I mean, if they're resorting to trial by combat in the first place, it was probably to avoid a death penalty. This started as early as the late Roman Empire and was officially put into practice by the first Burgundian king, Gundibald, in 501 AD. It was he who started the practice of throwing down the Glover Gauntlet as a challenge to duel. As the art of dueling spread throughout Europe, proxy fighters began to crop up. Proxies were professional duelists who fought for coin, meaning the richest man typically hired the better fighter, and consequently, the rich won while the poor lost. And these duels were spectacles, drawing in crowds much like gladiatorial combat in Rome had done, albeit not in the same size. As chivalry, the code of honor that European knights pledged to uphold began to permeate the upper classes in the 11th century, these fights to settle honor became a sport. Combat on horseback became popular and deadly, with the winner permitted to slit the throat of the loser, take his valuables, and desecrate his corpse. Later, the tournament was instituted, a faux duel with real consequences. Matters of honor could be settled here, but rarely were they grudges. Tournaments were still dangerous, of course. Henry II of France famously took a lance to the head while celebrating a peace treaty in 1559, the lance splintering and piercing through his eye socket into his head. And of course, this isn't even considering the unofficial duels of the peasantry, and you'd be surprised how long trial by combat lasted in the European legal system. In England, it wasn't outlawed until 1817. And even then, it was because no proxy fighter could be found to fight the accuser. But for the most part, judicial trial by combat had begun to die out by the late Middle Ages. Partly this was because of the decline of feudalism, but much of it can be attributable to one particular fight, Jarnac and Chatenier. In fifteen forty-seven, two French nobles, Comte de la Chatenier and Comte de Charbord de Jarnac, fell into a dispute. Chattenerier accused Yarnac of having an affair with his own stepmother. Yarnack appealed to King Francois for a trial by combat, which he agreed to. Francois died before it could be initiated, and King Henry, the same Henry who died by lance to the eye, presided over the duel. On July 10, 1547, the two men faced off. Holland writes, quote, on the appointed day, Yarnac had been ill with a fever and was still feeling shaky but determined. Chatagnier, a war hero and considered the finest swordsman in France, was the odds-on favor. Cocky and confident, he'd given detailed orders for an elaborate victory banquet before he came to the field. After the usual ceremonies, they fell on each other. Chatagnier started out with the advantage, but Yarnak swooped down and sliced through the hamstring of its left leg. Both men were wearing only half-armor, down to the knees. Chateauneirier staggered and couldn't return the blow. Then, Yarnac whirled around and cut the hamstring of the other leg, and Chateauneirier crashed to the ground, bleeding. It was legal, actually, but not very sporting. The duel was over, but Yarnac wished to spare his life so long as he admitted his lie. Chateauneirier did not answer. Neither did the king. Yarnac continued to appeal. Begging both men to either confess or spare his life. He even knelt and laid his dagger and sword at the king's feet. But the king remained mute. Spectators began to clamor for the king's response, and finally he relented, sparing Chateaunerier. The man died from his wounds shortly thereafter. Now, the reason this duel was so important was twofold. One, nobody believed it had been a fair trial. Nobody believed that Chateaunerier was guilty, or that God had brought justice to the affair. And two, everyone agreed that the king's response to let his Châtenirier bleed to death was uncalled for. Châtenirier was a good friend. In fact, what was the purpose of the king to decide the outcome between two men? The dispute was between the accused and the accuser. There was no need for God, or kings, or judges. In fact, it was not about justice. It was about honor. Thus, duels went private. By the time the duels came to America, knights had become gentlemen. Dueling had become a defense against chaos and barbarity. Gentlemen could settle disputes without engaging in full on war, a violent means to curb violence. Dueling had become tied to personal honor, an ambiguous idea seldom found in contemporary society. We might claim that honor still exists. Treating a woman with respect, holding doors open, that sort of thing. And that dishonor exists in certain actions, such as adultery or embezzlement. But in the 17th century, it was tied into everything a person said or did. It could be an insult, a phrase, a rumor, an offhand remark, or a single sentence printed in a paper. It could be how you greeted someone or whether you greeted them at all. It could arise from a personal dispute or a political one. What was most important was that not everyone had it. Quote, whatever honor was, only gentlemen had it. Only gentlemen needed to defend it, which made their lives more perilous than those of the lesser beings who could shrug and laugh off an insult. If a lesser being sent a challenge to a gentleman, the gentleman could also shrug and laugh it off. End quote. A gentleman was not decided by his actions, it was decided by class. Quote, Manners had nothing to do with it. You could be as rude, surly, and bad-tempered as you liked. Beat your wife, rape your servants, strew illegitimate children far and wide, drink and gamble till the cows came home, and let your bills pile up for decades till your tailor and vinter starved. But you were always a gentleman because you were born one, and so was your son. End quote. As Europeans made their way to the new world, they brought these beliefs with them, for the most part, pistols had replaced swords, and thus the need for special training and fencing had been done away with for the most part. Anyone could duel. However, the idea of gentleman's honor persisted. If anything, it fragmented even more. Holland makes clear, quote, editors fought duels to defend their editorial opinions. Doctors fought duels to determine whose medical procedures were right and whose were wrong. Judges fought duels to prove that their decisions were justified. The upwardly mobile middle class fought duels to look more aristocratic, end quote. No longer was it simply a misspoken word that could fuel a duel. Now, it was simply a disagreement of minds. Ironically, it was the Europeans that had started this trend. And yet many Europeans believed that dueling in America was a barbaric affair. This was untrue, but Europeans bought it anyways. In fact, Europeans believed all sorts of manner about duels in America. One popular opinion was that an American duel consisted of combatants drawing straws and the loser shooting himself. Another belief was that duels were initiated ad hoc. Bronson Howard wrote in 1894, quote, If there is any such thing as an American duel, it is what is familiarly known as shooting on sight. The challenger sends word to his enemy that he will shoot him the next time he sees him, and thereupon the latter arms himself and takes his walks abroad with much caution, until the two meet when both begin a brisk fusillade with their revolvers, and one of them is usually killed together with from four to six of the bystanders. End quote. Really, American dueling was the same as European dueling. An affair between men over an unwritten code of honor with the same rules as they played by. First, if seconds could not solve a dispute, then a time and place would be decided. Dueling pistols were supplied by one or both parties. They were often engraved, housed in their own mahogany and velvet boxes, passed down generation to generation. They were fifty caliber and unrifled. It was considered unsporting for it to be so easy to hit a man at close range. Air triggers were used early on. The slightest touch could set it off. The problem was that a nervous man would shoot his own foot or off into the air more often than not, and eventually they were phased out of existence. Duels typically took place at 12 paces, or about 20 yards. A contemporary advice book on how to duel, The Art of Dueling, explained the details, quote, Stand with the right and left shoulder in line with the object he wishes to hit his head bent to the right, and his eyes fixed on the object. His feet should be almost close together, his left arm hanging down and his right holding the pistol with the muzzle pointing to the ground close at his feet. He should keep his shoulders well back and his stomach drawn in, then stamping his feet twice or thrice on the ground to feel he stands firmly. Let him raise his right arm steadily, bending it at the elbow, and drawing the pistol into a line with the object. Bring that part of the arm between the shoulder and the elbow close to that side. Throw the muscle strongly and let it cover the breast as much as possible. He should choose a target on his target, such as a coat button, focus on it, and bring the head straight, keeping the eyes turned as much to the right as possible and the pistol directed steadily towards the small object that has been noticed. Be cool, collected, and firm. And think of nothing but placing the ball on the proper spot. When the word is given, pull the trigger. Carefully and endeavor to avoid moving a muscle in the arm or hand. Move only the forefinger. And that with just sufficient force to discharge the pistol. End quote. Then the combatants would wait for the word. Fire or a dropped handkerchief. Rarely, they would do the classic pace-off, turn, and fire. It was inaccurate, so the likelihood of someone being struck was much less. Even so, it still sometimes occurred. It seems interesting to me that the rules of dueling say a lot about honor, justice, and masculinity. Notice how dueling isn't about much more skill than lining up a shot. People even complained if the weapons were too accurate because it wasn't sporting. And it's not about killing your rival. If that happened, often it created quite a scandal. Depending on the state, it was illegal, and most civilized citizens would frown at the outcome. Instead, it's about courage, chutzpah, if you will. Standing down your rival with a bullet in the chamber, never mind where the bullet ends up, so long as you stand to your ground. And I think it's fascinating, too, that the duel has a lot of similarities with how warfare was fought in the 1700s. Standing in an open field, lined up at a close range, unleashing a volley while they unleashed theirs. Manliness went hand in hand with having the balls to stand on the closest thing you could to the battlefield, the dueling ground. But just because dueling was socially acceptable didn't make it legally acceptable. Quickly, duels began to be outlawed by colonies. In 1719, Massachusetts was the first colony to outlaw dueling. These laws had little effect. The first recorded fatal duel was on Boston Common in 1729 between two men with sword over an accusation of cheating at cards. It also didn't help that the very leaders who passed these laws were often the ones who dueled the most. The founding fathers participated in duels frequently. The ink was barely dry on the Declaration of Independence before Button Gwinnett, one of the signers, challenged General Lachlan McIntosh to a deal with pistols after losing the governorship of Georgia. Gwenton was killed at 12 paces. I find it fascinating that in early America, dueling went hand in hand with politics. Before political parties really came into being, a man's political opinions weren't attached to a party platform, they were their own. They were one's identity. They could not be accused as part of a party's political beliefs, they were possessed only by the individual. Thus, many men traded gunpowder to protect their political principles. Holland writes, quote, It was political suicide to suffer an affront without challenging, or to decline a challenge. Such things had a way of getting around, by means of dinner parties, pseudonymous newspaper articles, or the custom popular into the 1890s of posting in taverns and on street corners notices that called the coward a coward. End quote. For politicians, the duel was a place where political careers lived or died. If a duel went unchallenged, it tanked their legacy. Conversely, if a duel was won, it could set them up for life. So it went for James Jackson, a 23-year-old who killed the lieutenant governor of Georgia for his own overbearing manners and went on to become governor himself, as well as congressman and senator. In one instant... Blows almost came to pass between President John Adams and James Monroe when Adams insulted Monroe. The only thing that saved Adams was, quote, he is an old man and the president, end quote, and that it would be politically unpopular to kill the president. Go figure. Another famous duel was between Congressman Spencer Pettis and Major Thomas Biddle over an insult thrown at Pettis that he was, quote, a bowl of skimmed milk. End quote. They shot at each other at five feet. Yet another was that of Congressman Jonathan Silley and Congressman William Graves over insults traded in a newspaper. They shot with rifles at 80 paces. Silly was killed. Of course, although Northerners participated in these duels, many believed it was Southerners who reveled in them. John Randolph was elected to Congress as both representative and senator. He was a bizarre fellow who enjoyed insulting his fellow congressmen and dueling even more. He claimed at one of his first pronouncements in Congress the toast, quote, damn George Washington, end quote. He called Daniel Webster a vile slanderer, John Williams a traitor, Edward Livingston, quote, the most contemptible and degraded of beings whom no man ought to touch unless with a pair of tongs, end quote. He insulted one man by claiming, quote, he wasn't fit to carry guts to a bear, end quote. When the man demanded an apology, he sneered that he'd take it back. It turned out the fellow was fit to carry the guts of a bear. Opponents responded by calling him half mad, quote, that long dread churlin tyrant, a planetary plague, and a maniac in his straitjacket accidentally broken out of his cell, end quote. Some even insulted his underdeveloped body from a malady that had afflicted him at a young age, particularly that if he was underdeveloped everywhere else, he must also be underdeveloped where it counts. For these insults, he dueled often. His first duel was fought as a student at the age of 18 over the pronunciation of a word used in the debate club. The man was wounded in the hip. Years later, when they met, Randolph proclaimed, quote, but, Robert, it was pronounced so. End quote. Most famously, he came to dueling Henry Clay, former Speaker of the House and Secretary of State, when Randolph accused him of cheating at cards. His second was James Alexander Hamilton, son of that Hamilton. Like Hamilton, Randolph claimed he didn't intend to shoot at Clay, stating, quote, I will not make his wife a widow or his children orphans. End quote. On April 8, 1826, the group met near Little Falls Bridge on the Potomac River. Randolph was wearing a flannel bathrobe. Both fired at each other and missed. Insistent that it continue, both reloaded but called it quits at the second round. Randolph's bluster was a textbook example of how politicians settled their scores in the 19th century. But as mentioned, the most famous of these political duels, of course, is Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Alexander Hamilton himself explained why he accepted the duel. Quote, the ability to be in the future useful, whether in resisting mischief or affecting good, would probably be inseparable from a conformity with public prejudice in this particular End quote. that at least was a reason he gave publicly. The reasons itself are more obscure; both had many similarities. they both served in the American Revolution, were New York lawyers and shorter than average. Broadway states that the two were acquaintances early on. Realistically, they knew of each other and worked cases together back in New York, but they weren't close. The transgressions began after Burr beat Philip Schuyler for a position as New York senator. Hamilton helped Schuyler turn around and win the next election. Burr then applied for a Brigadier generalship in the army, but was refused. Coincidentally, Hamilton and Washington were good friends. He began to believe that Hamilton had it out for him and it certainly began to look that way. Burr ran for president and tied with Jefferson, but lost the presidency when Hamilton sided with his rival Jefferson to throw the House of Representatives in his favor. His vice presidency was tarnished by statements that he had tried to forge a deal with a federalist to win enough votes to be elected president, even though that's exactly what Hamilton did with Jefferson. He was not asked for a second term, and Jefferson did not attempt to restore his reputation. Burr began a bid to run for governor in New York, but a published letter found its way into newspapers. It was written by a man named Charles Cooper, mentioning that Hamilton had privately stated insults about Burr. When Burr sent a letter to Hamilton asking for the truth, Hamilton published a scathing response that neither confirmed nor denied it. Letters flew back and forth before Burr issued a formal challenge stating, quote, satisfactory redressed. Earnestly desired cannot be obtained. End quote. Hamilton deferred, obviously not wishing to duel, giving excuses. He could answer a specific grievance, but not a general inquiry. He was busy with the circuit court. He was too honorable a lawyer. But it didn't matter. The second set a time and place Wednesday, July 11th, 1804, 7 a.m. at Weehawken, the same place his son Philip had been mortally shot in a duel two and a half years beforehand. Historians still debate why Hamilton showed up that day. Burr had been given a set of dueling pistols from a man he helped get acquitted for murder. He practiced often with them, an unusual hobby back then, almost tantamount to cheating. He was, by all accounts, an expert and better shot. Furthermore, Hamilton wrote his justification before he left and admitted his errors but insisted he could not apologize. Historians have argued that he was suicidal or consumed with hatred. Coincidentally, they have argued the same about Burr. Holland probably has the best answer of all. Quote, It seems likely that Hamilton and Burr both knew something the scholars don't. They knew what it was that Hamilton had been saying, off the record, at dinner parties after the ladies had left the room, about Burr's private character. Cooper didn't put the more despicable allegation in print because it was unprintable. Hamilton didn't apologize because it was beyond apology. Burr challenged him because it was beyond forgiveness. End quote. Hamilton wrote ahead of time that he wouldn't fire at Burr. He brought the dueling pistols, two 56 caliber flint locks with hair triggers hidden in a lock under the stock. In a providential twist, they had been used twice before, once by Hamilton's brother-in-law against Aaron Burr and Hoboken, another by Eaker against Philip Hamilton the two paced off turned and waited for the command word at this they fired i think one thing that's tricky about duels is that by this point the legality of them was questionable depending on the state cover-ups were necessary just to save from political blowback so accounts were often muddled by differing statements trying to write themselves into the history books which ones are true are often hard to determine holland writes about the difficulty for later historians stating quote no disinterested reporters stood by to take notes. Few disinterested reporters could have been found, and even fewer disinterested newspapers for them to report to. Partisan seconds, witnesses, friends, and enemies posted different accounts. End quote. It'll never be known what truly happened that day, but we can take a good shot at it. Hamiltonians argue that he was struck by Burr and fired into the air as his finger involuntarily clutched around the trigger. Burr's seconds stated Hamilton discharged his pistol first and punctually at Burr. Broadway states he fired into the air willingly and voluntarily. That doesn't match the man history has written about. Realistically, he intended to fire at Burr and either misjudged the hair trigger and fired as he was raising his arm or simply missed. Either way, Hamilton was mortally wounded and died from the duel. Burr went down as a murderer and Hamilton as a saint. But much like most duels of the day, the truth was much more complicated. The Burr-Hamilton duel was only one of many political confrontations that ended up on the field with pistols at dawn. There was even a place marked unofficially for duels between politicians. It was on the Bladensburg Dueling Ground, a spot off the road between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, only half a mile away from D.C. itself and a mile from Bladensburg. An article in March 1858 in Harper's New Monthly Magazine described it as, quote, hemmed in on three sides by hills, which seemed to stand like sentinels to guard the privacy of the place, while on the 4th by which the road ran, it was effectually screened from observation by the thick foliage of trees and the matted roof of overhanging vines, so that in every respect it seemed peculiarly adopted for the objects to which it had been dedicated, end quote. Twenty duels had been fought there, starting with Edward Hopkins of Maryland in 1814. Stephen Decatur was the most famous man to die there. He was a commodore in the U.S. Navy, the first post-revolutionary war hero. He fought in the Barbary Wars, the Quasi-War against France, and the War of 1812. He was a patriot through and through. His opponent, James Barron, was also a naval officer. His career had been tarnished by the Chesapeake-Leopold Affair, in which he, the commanding officer, had lost his ship to the British outside of wartime. Decatur had set on the inquiry board that suspended him, as well as the inquiry board that denied him active service after his suspension had ended. Barron, feeling his reputation blemished by Decatur, challenged him to a duel. On March 22, 1820, they met at Bladensburg. The article from Harper's described it as follows quote, The ground was paced off. The combatants took their places, and Barron said he hoped that they would be better friends on meeting in another world. End quote. Decatur said, quote, I have never been your enemy, sir. End quote. At the word two, they both fired. One source says that Decatur had announced that, having no desire to kill, he would shoot Barron in the hip. One says Barron was wounded in the thigh. Certainly, he was wounded and looked in a fair way to perish, but recovered within a month and went on to a long, though undistinguished career in the Navy and died at 89, Decatur was hit in the stomach. I am mortally wounded, he told his second. At least I believe so and wish that I had fallen in defense of my country. A patriot to the end, he was carried to his house on Lafayette Square and died 12 hours later. Decatur was only one of many commissioned officers to duel to the death. Many famous naval officers had done so, Oliver Hazard Perry, hero of the Battle of Lake Erie among them. So many were dying in duels that the War Department issued a threat to discharge those who did, whether legal in the state or not. The armed forces in general had difficulty dealing with duels among its high-ranking officers. General Armistead T. Mason, a Virginian senator, and Colonel John M. McCarty were just two of many who ended up at Bladensburg over an altercation on a military service bill. Mason resigned his post as general of the militia just so he could participate. In February 1819, they met in a snowstorm. Their choice of weapons was muskets at 12 feet. The muskets were almost touching each other when they fired. Mason's rifle got tangled in his overcoat as he raised to fire, and McCarty was only wounded in the arm. McCarty's shot blew Mason away, the musket ball fragmenting on his elbow and splitting into shrapnel that embedded itself all over his left side. Duels decimated the officer ranks of the armed forces before they finally federally outlawed them in 1862. And again, it's worth noting that these duels were between officers of high status who wished to preserve what they saw as military honor. In fact, the officer corps... Bought into this idea of honor more than any other profession. One wonders if it's because of all the professions in the 19th century the most masculine would be the armed forces. To preserve one's manliness, they would have to be willing to die for it, whether on the battlefield or the dueling field. But if we're talking about duels and masculinity, nowhere do these two meet more than in the South. In the South, dueling culture was dominant. Southerner males believed themselves to be aristocrats, and of course, the way European aristocrats solved problems was through the duel. The novelist William Sims wrote that the Southern duelist, quote, fights to maintain his position in society, to silence insult, to check brutality, prevent encroachment, avenge a wrong of some sort, and in obedience to fierce passions that will not let him sleep under the sense of injury and annoyance, end quote. Like Bladensburg, there were particular fields that Southerners often met for a duel. Belle Isle near Richmond, Virginia. Bloody Island near St. Louis, Missouri. The Dueling Oaks in New Orleans. If it was illegal in their state, they often crossed state boundaries to escape jurisdiction in their own states. People could even engage on a paddlewheel boat midriver where no jurisdiction applied. These locales could be busy. At the Dueling Oak on one Sunday, In 1839, 10 duels were fought, crowded with spectators. Southern duels also had their own flavor apart from the rest of America. For example, South Carolina was home to America's first and only dueling club. Its membership based on the number of men a person had maimed. The president was the person with the most killed. In New Orleans, fencing was still fashionable, and fencing masters were celebrities. They sauntered throughout the French Quarter, with a throng around them. One Frenchman known as Titi fought seven duels a week. Much like the French, Southern masculinity also expected a gentleness, almost feminine quality to their daily life. The same Titi that killed dozens of men supposedly cried at the theater, then challenged men to duels should they laugh at him in their seats. Professions normally off-limits to violence became engrossed in it for the sake of deciding male honor. Doctors were especially brutal, shooting and stabbing over differing opinions on medical treatments. One doctor supposedly practiced his aim on cadavers that he strung up as targets. Editors of publications especially had to worry about violent repercussions. Back in the 19th century, printing something that insulting or libelous could land one with a beating, arson, or yes, a duel. It didn't take much print that a man was an abolitionist in the South and a duel would be initiated. It was the equivalency of calling them treasonous or deadbeat. And of course, Southerners practiced their special styles of dueling in politics as well as in civilian life. James Jackson of Georgia was one such rowdy politician. A veteran of the Revolutionary War, he dueled many politicians. His most famous was in 1796 an ad hoc duel on Georgia's statehouse steps. Robert Watkins, a detractor of his, insulted him verbally over a bill he had worked to defeat. Jackson responded, quote, the stick flew involuntarily at him until my little Lucas stick broke. I finally frapped him, but the third blow, it broke in my hand until then had not struck me. But now at his mercy, I received one blow on the head, which for a moment stunned me and I fell, end quote. He jumped back up and was warned that Watkins had a pistol. Very well, so did he, he exclaimed. Quote, tis well. We are on a footing. Clear the way. End quote. They aimed at each other, but his pistol was knocked away by one of Watkins' friends. Watkins missed and went to stab him with a bayonet on the pistol. Watkins gouged his only eye. Jackson tried to bite off his finger. Watkins grabbed another bayoneted pistol and stabbed him in the left breast over and over. Eventually, they were pulled off each other. Jackson survived, and the two of them had three proper duels, none of which ended in death. But of all the Southern duelists, none was more famous than Alexander Keith McClung of Kentucky, known as the Black Knight of the South. He was a tall, red-headed man who was a nephew of Chief Justice John Marshall. He learned to duel in the Navy, so much so, he was forced to resign. He promised his mother he would never issue another challenge for a duel. That didn't mean he couldn't accept one, however. His most famous duel was with popular politician General Allen. They had been friends before, but had fallen out, and when Allen called out on a crowded street that McClung was a, quote, liar, scoundrel, and fool, end quote, McClung responded with such a string of insults that Allen challenged him to a duel. McClung set the terms, four pistols, two bowie knives, 80 paces. The two would walk towards each other and shoot at will. Should they run out of pistols, they would end it with a knife. Holland writes about the ensuing duel, They met in a bushy tract along the Pearl River. At the signal, they started forward, and Allen cried, Now we'll see who's the coward, and raised his first gun. Yes, we will, said McClung. But he kept his own gun down. They were still over 100 feet apart. Allen, nervous, fired, and missed. Are you content? called McClung. No, cried Allen, and pulled out his second pistol. McClung replied, Then I'll hit you in the teeth. He fired, almost casually, they say, but it was an amazing shot, considered an American distant record for a dueling pistol, and exactly in the teeth, as he'd promised. The ball embedded itself in the back of Allen's neck, and he died as he fell. His reputation from that duel followed him everywhere, once, he offended a man, and the man gave him his calling card as a challenge. McClung handed the man his. After he did, quote, The man read it, turned white, and stammered out. Just let me have my card back. That's all I ask. End quote. McClung gave it back. Another time, at a hotel, he cut a piece of butter with his own personal knife. Another customer offended called out, Waiter, remove the butter. That man stuck his knife in it. McClung shoved the plate of butter into the man's face and replied, Waiter, remove the butter. This man stuck his nose in it. But his brash behavior hid a melancholy mood behind it, perhaps the ghost of the men he killed. He would often visit a cemetery and stare into the sky for hours while laying on a grave. When he was out with one paramour, he forced her to accept his engagement. By threatening, he would drown both of them by driving the carriage into the river. She later reneged on the acceptance. When he served in the Mexican War and was wounded, he came back telling people he wished he had died in Mexico. He drank heavily. One day, in Jackson, Mississippi, he called on a carpenter to make a special chair with a V in the back rather than a traditional square. When the carpenter left, McClung shot himself in the head with one of his dueling pistols. The head was held up by the V, so that it did not fall forward and stain the white shirt. And poem fastened to it, the last lines read: quote, "O vainly the mariner sighs for the rest of the peaceful haven, the pilgrim's saint for the homes of the blest and the calm of heaven, the galley slave for the night wind's breath at burning noon, but more gladly I'll spring to thy arms, O death, come soon, come soon." End quote. If the East was a place of duels with rules, the West was often perceived as, well, the Wild West. Even to this day, people believe that high noon duels were common, when they were anything but. We've discussed that in our episode, Death Has Signed a Contract, but to reiterate, most quote, Wild West shootouts were typically young drunk men in a tavern fumbling for their revolvers over cards or girls. In most shootouts, there was no moment of, quote, meet me outside. Even the most famous shootouts, such as at Tombstone, Dodge City, and Deadwood, were improvised and unexpected. Proper duels were rare. Unlike in the East, men in the West universally carried firearms, and for the most part, it detracted violence. When it didn't, flared tempers normally led to an immediate, no holds barred fight. That's not to say they did not occur. One of the most famous Western shootouts was between Wild Bill Hickok and David Tutt. Previously, they had been friends, but had fallen out over women. One day, Hickok was playing cards, and Tutt began to humiliate him over debts he still had not paid to Tutt. He took Hickok's gold pocket watch off the table as collateral. In response, Hickok said if he saw Tutt wearing his watch, he'd shoot him dead. When Hickok heard Tutt's friends bragging that he would be wearing the watch in the middle of the town square the next day, Hickok replied, quote, he shouldn't come across that square unless dead men can walk, end quote. On July 21st, 1865, Hickok saw Tut wearing that watch in the square. Calmly, he approached the square with his revolver in his hand. Like a Hollywood duel, the crowd scattered. Only Tut and Hickok remained alone on the street. He stopped at 75 yards. Both men, eyed each other, and drew at the exact same time and fired one shot nearly simultaneously. Tut missed, but Hickok's bullet lodged itself between Tut's ribs. Tut yelled, Boys, I'm killed, and died. Hickok's one-on-one shootout is one of the very recorded instances of what we think of as the Western shootout. Man-to-man, twitchy fingers, staring at each other down at high noon, but in reality, there's a reason they were so rare. The masculinity of honor had evolved. Hickok and Tut talked a big game, but they both knew what awaited them if they followed through. At the very least, an arrest warrant with a possible hanging at the end of it. At the very most, death by gunshot wound. Hickok was arrested on murder charges, later changed to manslaughter. He was acquitted, like many Western courts did in cases of self-defense and honor. But the risk of a trial or being run out or lynched by a mob provoked hesitation in gunmen. Truthfully, no one wanted to die. Self-preservation and the wish to live had begun to take precedence over displays of manly courage. Take, for example, Mark Twain. In 1864, he was in the silver mines of Virginia City, Nevada, and challenged James Laird, a publisher of a rival newspaper that had protested a piece Twain had written. Twain attempted to practice for the duel by shooting at a target nailed to a barn door, but couldn't even hit the barn. It's possible this was the source of the phrase couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. Twain had begun to lose his nerve when Laird began to approach with his friends. Twain's second, Steve Laird, grabbed his gun, shot the head off a nearby small bird. When Laird arrived, all they saw was Gillis admiring it. Holland fills in the rest of the details. Who did that? asked Laird's second, Gillis said that Twain had done it. And furthermore, he could do it over and over. Decapitating small birds whenever he wanted, and added, quote, You don't want to fight that man. It's just like suicide. You'd better settle this thing now. End quote. Twain was able to settle, and he never fought another duel in his life. However, dueling was illegal, and he had published his challenge in the paper. When authorities got wind, Twain was ran out of the territory. In the West, many duels were prohibited simply by either the proliferation of firearms or the prohibition of them. Tombstone and Dodge City were both towns that outlawed firearms and their homicide rates were much lower than later myth made them out to be. Make no mistake, they were still high. Dodge City had a murder rate of 1 out of 61 over a period of 10 years, higher than any city in the world today. But it wasn't a constant Hollywood shootout. Much of this violent perception comes from the fact that the North and South had cooled to the art of the duel after the Civil War. Half a million dead Americans tend to do that to a society. Sporadic violence is a spectacle. Total war is a wake-up call. The idea of violence as a showcase of masculinity evaporated overnight. That's not to say men didn't revel in the fantasy of it. They could vicariously live it out in the newspapers about the frontier West, most of which was made up anyways. But they knew the true nature of violence. They'd seen it in the war. When they had fought on the battlefields of Antietam, Gettysburg, and Vicksburg for honor, what good had it done them? The South had lost their entire way of life. The North could claim moral victory, but at what cost? This new public perception over the necessity of dueling was reflected in the legal sphere. Dueling laws had been locally passed by many cities and states for sometimes hundreds of years, Now they actually began enforcing them. Some states, like Georgia, passed laws that punished acceptance of a challenge with $500, six months in jail, and even two years of hard labor, along with your second. In newspapers, a duel no longer was a gun battle. It was fisticuffs in a bar or a matching of wits in court. Newspapers learned they could use the same language to sell newspapers as they did before. But most importantly, the economics had changed the aristocracy, at least as we know it, died out. Aristocrats became businessmen. As Holland puts it, quote, dueling for dollars replaced the pistol. Money could make a man indifferent to his image. A cash mentality seems to thicken the skin and pad the sensitivities in a way that noble birth and thousands of acres, reputation, or distinguished careers or political position never did. Money became the calling card, the genealogy, the good name, and the body armor. It was a new social order and a simpler one and needed no hand-to-hand defense, end quote. Now we live in a society where men can live vicariously through film and sports and games. They don't need to prove their worth by shooting someone on the dueling field. They just need to get the next promotion, win the next match, drive the biggest car. Men never lost the biological need to compete. They just changed the art of the duel. High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or find us at our website at HighCrimesandhistory.com.